True Crime friends, and welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you're having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I hope it gets better for you. It's pretty cold here on this Monday morning that I'm recording, so I'm just chilling, snuggled up in my comfy. This week's case is a very interesting case. You know, it's got all of the ingredients for a typical murder. Sex, obsession, money. So it's going to be a very interesting story. You know, obviously we've seen these types of motives for murder before. And yes, this story is just as salacious as any crime show take on any of those types of motives. So with that, let's get into it. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to let you know that a major source for today's episode is from ID or Investigation Discovery Channel, their show Married with Secrets. Um, It's specifically season one, episode seven, titled Obsession Has Its Price. On March 6th, 1983, Two trash pickers stumbled upon a trash bin, like every other that they had seen that day. What they found inside shocked them. A corduroy jacket, a men's blue shirt, and a sledgehammer with a single black hair on it. All of these items were covered in blood. The corduroy jacket had belonged to a 21-year-old woman named Robin Nadine Benedict, a graphic artist and escort from Boston. The shirt belonged to a 41-year-old William Douglas, a renowned professor of anatomy and cell biology at Tufts Medical School. At first, it would seem strange that these two would be linked by bloodstained clothing. A renowned professor at a prestigious medical school and a graphic artist-turned-sex worker. But, you know, not everything is what it seems. Robin Nadine Benedict was born to parents John and Shirley Benedict on July 19, 1961 in Methuen, Massachusetts. Benedict grew up in a middle-class lifestyle with four other brothers and sisters. By all accounts, Robin had a normal childhood. She graduated from Greater Lawrence Regional Vocational School and was awarded the Presidential Certificate of Merit for her artistic achievements. Her brother, Rob, who was interviewed in the documentary, described her as energetic and the glue of their family and someone who always had a smile on her face. According to him, she had an ability to find common ground with the whole family, hence why he called her the glue. She went on to study graphic design at Rhode Island School of Design for a year. She dropped out when she met her boyfriend, Louis Jones. The two soon moved in together in an apartment a few miles from Boston. Now, I've seen other reports say that her boyfriend's name was Carter Rogers, but I haven't found any source that can firmly (laughs) tell me what his correct name is. So for the purposes of this case, let's just call him her boyfriend. Okay. 
So after dating for some time, he convinced Robin to drop out of school to work at a massage parlor, where there he coerced her into providing add-on sexual services for her male clients. This led eventually led Robin to roam the bars of Boston's red light district, selling her services for $100 an hour. Robin was arrested at least once for this work, but that didn't stop her, and she was out in the combat zone working again. So, I mean, Robin seems like a pretty cool person. I would be friends with her. She, You know, she seems like she's someone who, you know, knows how to have fun and can get along with a lot of different types of people. It's a shame she had a shitty boyfriend. Because, I mean, if she wanted to get involved with sex work, then by all means, you know, do you, boo. I have nothing against sex workers. In fact, I, like, I support sex work, and I think it should be legalized in this country. But, you know... We're too prude over here in the U.S., so whatever. But in this case, I'm not entirely sure that that was what she wanted to do because, like they said, she was coerced into doing it. And in case you didn't know, coercion isn't consent, ladies and gentlemen. To me, I just think she wanted to please her boyfriend, which is still not consent to doing <laughs> You know, to selling yourself like that. But again, you know, she eventually agreed. But I don't think it was for the right reasons. You know, and I think like (laughs) this guy that she's dating, he seems to like this imbalance of power in his relationships. You know, because she goes from he goes from being her boyfriend to then being her pimp. And if you remember the Sex for Greed scandal episode, relationships with that type of power imbalance can't completely be consensual. So, I mean, basically, this guy's just scummy and gross and just, he's a piece of shit. Okay. Less is known about Professor William Douglas's early life, but we know that he married his high school sweetheart, Nancy, and the couple had three children together. Nancy was a nurse and worked nights at a senior care center. And the 41-year-old professor taught cell biology and anatomy at Tufts Medical School and actually gained tenure. It was said that he was an innovative thinker and brought in a lot of revenue to the university. Professor Douglas and his family, I mean, they technically lived the American dream. But one spring, however, his behavior started to change. In April of 1982, Professor William Douglas met 21-year-old Nadine Benedict at a bar called Good Time Charlie's, which was in Boston's Combat District. Now, the Combat District, again, very much like the Red Light District. Well, not like the real Red Light District, but it's the equivalent of that. But it was considered to be like a seedy place in Boston. And the area was filled with like adult bookstores, adult movie theaters, strip clubs, cheap bars, things like that. So, Professor, the professor went to the bar one day after work and Robin was there around the bar looking for her next client when she bumped into Professor Douglas. The two, quote unquote, like they hit it off, which I'm sorry, I feel like that's such an odd thing to say in this situation. But I mean, I guess that's technically what happened. But she took him on as a client. So their affair meetings business transactions i'm just i'm sorry i'm just not sure how to say that in the most respectful way 
But their encounters continued and they became more frequent. Professor Douglas had become more and more obsessed with Robin. He would write her love letters and call her multiple times of the day. But for her, like, it was strictly business. And what started as once-a-week meetings quickly became a daily routine to the point that Professor Douglas was literally draining his savings accounts to fund his times with Robin. So as we can see, this uh, quote-unquote relationship becomes very problematic very quickly. And uh, it's only going to get worse, guys. Sorry. Professor Douglas soon started stealing money from the university and even hired, not really hired, but said he hired Robin to be his quote-unquote research assistant. This didn't go unnoticed by the department or the board. The accounting department attempted to bring an inquiry into his spending, but (laughs) this guy, Professor Douglas boasted about the revenue he brought into the university and they dropped the inquiry real quick. I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty arrogant. I mean, I know it worked, but like that's arrogant. As we can see, he's spending a lot of money in order to spend time with Robin. Now, if I were Robin, I think I might have cut him off a lot sooner. But I mean, especially like when the love letters started coming in. But again, it seems like she's making a good amount of money. So like I can understand why she wouldn't want to stop. He's her biggest spender. So, you know, he's paying her bills. I don't I can't blame her for wanting to stay where the money was. I am surprised that the university didn't do a more thorough job in checking the professor's spending. Just because with like most institutions like college, you know, they're losing. They, they notice they're losing money or at least that money's being spent, you know, and that's mostly what they care about. Money, money, money. So the fact that they didn't really look too much further into it until a little bit later, we'll see. But like, I don't, I don't know. It just didn't make sense to me. So when Robin was brought on to the university's payroll, the board had made multiple requests to meet her in person, but the professor always made excuses for her absence. His behavior also changed. He was coming in later, sleeping in his office, things like that. His assistant Jane noted that one time he came late, his clothes were completely disheveled and he had scratches and cuts on his face. When she asked him what had happened, he told her that he was mugged. But when she suggested that he call the police... Obviously, Professor Douglas adamantly refused. Hmm, I wonder why. It is stated that Jane also came across a note from Miss Benedict and found it extremely odd when the professor had added her to a list of people to be sent straight to his line when they called. Now, this list of people that was already established, that included his wife, his children, and like a certain select few family members. Jane reported the professor, and this led to a university search into Robin Benedict's work history, which I don't know why they didn't. Well, if he's the one who hired her, I guess, then they wouldn't need to look into her work history. But anyway, sorry. So when they reached out to another university that was on her resume to confirm her employment, they found out she had never worked there. And rightfully so, the university had enough. Since they couldn't fire him due to his tenure status, they just suspended him and ordered him to pack up his stuff and leave the campus. 
When he got home that night, Nancy confronted him and gave him an ultimatum. You can stay and I'll take you back, but you cannot ever see or contact your mistress. Now, I don't know if Nancy knew Robin's name or if the professor told her, but she did know that he was having an affair. And, you know, regardless, Nancy doesn't deserve this. Poor Nancy. So, you know, it seems like the professor's life is coming apart, obviously. But, I mean, you know. You know, I hate to be that way, but it kind of deserved it. You know? You're being this shady and this sketchy. Like, how long did you think this was going to be able to last? I mean, good on Jane that she did something about it. I'm not sure what the letter that she found from Robin had said. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was, like, a response to, like, one of his love letters or something. So for a little while, the professor agreed, but he couldn't stay away for long. He was scheduled to give a talk at another university out of town and was going to be away for three days. So he reached out to Robin and asked her to accompany him under the guise that she was his research assistant. <laughs> I mean, okay. I, you know, obviously it didn't work with his university, to get her to be a quote-unquote research assistant so the fact that he like it's just weird like maybe I don't know the communications between universities but I would have thought that this other university that he's giving a talk at would have heard some sort of rumor about what's going on with him but you know whatever I think I don't know I just think that that was stupid and careless like (laughs) He's supposed to be this really smart guy, but yet I'm not seeing his uh, intelligence here. At the end of the trip, Professor Douglas didn't have the $3,000 he owed Robin, and it actually gave him a panic attack. The professor asked Robin to call his wife, and Robin and Nancy were forced to meet. Nancy again. Nancy, Nancy. Sweet Nancy. Gave him the ultimatum again. Now, look, I understand Nancy wants to keep her family together. And that's honorable, you know? I mean, marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. I mean, I'm not married, so I wouldn't know, but I am in a relationship, so I know how hard that is. But, like, (laughs) at what cost, you know? Like, I feel horrible for her. Obviously, he completely humiliated her. Again! I mean, it's not like he... Because, again, he went back on his promise. So he had humiliated her the first time when she found out. And now it's all over again. And literally, she's face-to-face with her. You know? I mean, I could sit here and judge and say that, you know, she should have left him. But, again, I think she's making these decisions so that way she can give her children the most normal family life that they can have. And I can understand that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Guys. Let me tell you about my friend, Mandy. She makes some of the most beautiful crocheted goods and decorations I have truly ever seen. The holidays are just around the corner, so you're either going to be looking for that super unique gift, 
or that super special ornament or decoration for your home, do yourself a favor. Go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram, and slide into her DMs. Trust me, you are just going to love everything she has to offer. I already have a few pumpkins from her. I have a really nice crocheted headband that keeps me warm in the winter. And of course, my very, very favorite Coraline doll. So if you're looking for cool decorations or if you're looking for that super special gift, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram to order now. So again, Professor Douglas agrees. But of course, on the night of March 5th, 1983, Robin comes to the house after calling him like 12 times. She tells him that she doesn't want to see him again. So she's ending their relationship and she's demanding that she needs her $3,000, which again, the professor doesn't have. So according to the professor's account, which sadly is the only account we have, so take it as you will. This started a fight between the two of them. And at one point, Robin hit him. She tried to leave, but he chased her. The two fought, and Professor Douglas admits to hitting her multiple times before grabbing a sledgehammer and hitting her in the head three times. He claims all of this was done in self-defense, and Robin's brother, Rob, (laughs) believes that this excuse is bullshit. And quite frankly, I do too. I can't imagine that this big guy that Professor Douglas was, because if you look up pictures of him, he's pretty big, and you'll see them on social media. I highly doubt he was afraid of Robin, who was a lot smaller than him. Also, I don't who keeps a sledgehammer in their house, like just out and about, willy nilly. Like, I, were they in the middle of a renovation or something? Like, I can't understand why you like how he would have had a sledgehammer. So readily available to him. Personally, what I think happened, I think one of the times that he had hit her, she got knocked out. And when she was knocked out, I think he went and then he grabbed the sledgehammer from wherever it actually was, like the garage or some, or a shed, you know, some normal place where you would keep a sledgehammer and then decided to kill her, you know, to get rid of the problem. But again, we only have his word on the matter, so... We'll never really know if that was really the case. The professor wrapped Robin's body and placed her in the trunk of his car. He then put the shirt and the jacket she was wearing and the sledgehammer into a trash bag and just drove around. The professor pulled over at a red stop in Mansfield and disposed of the bag containing their bloodied clothes and the murder weapon. He then drove to Providence, Rhode Island and disposed of her body in a dumpster that he knew would go to a massive landfill where it would be impossible to find. What a dick. The following day, Robin's boyfriend goes to the police to file a missing persons report after realizing that she never came home. The police quickly brushed him off due to her prostitution charge and tell him that, oh, she's just probably with a John. Now, Robin's parents also became extremely worried when they hadn't heard from their daughter, so they called the police, but sadly, they were given the same excuse. I mean, holy shit, the asshole, her boyfriend, did something right for once. I'm not saying he didn't have feelings for her. I doubt it, but it's possible. 
But it seemed like he had some level of care in order to report her missing. But, again, he could have been more concerned about the money he was losing from her absence. So, it's hard to tell. But, either way, he technically still did the right thing by trying to report it. Now, I'm going to bring up Tammy again. Tammy's a wiki from episode one. And the whole stupid 48 to 72 hour waiting period. I've said this before. (laughs) I hate that waiting period. And I can understand why that's in place to some extent because of people run, you know, people who want to run away. You know, I hate my parents. I don't, they don't let me do what they want. So I'm going to run away. But I think it's better to expend resources to try and find people that maybe don't want to be found than to just brush it off and then find out later that it's a homicide. Actually, I forget what I, what show I was listening to or watching. I can't. I think it was a show because I kind of have this guy's face in my head. But yeah, I can't. I can't remember what it was. But this guy had suggested that, and I think he was a cop too or a detective. He suggested that any missing persons report should immediately be treated as a homicide, which I one thousand percent agree with. Because if you don't start looking, we all know this. The longer you wait, the harder it is to find someone. And again, the reason I'm bringing up Tammy in this case is because she and Robin are the same age at this point at the time of their deaths. And they both had concerned parents calling in. And again, like I said, I can't understand. In Robin's case, she had two separate, like her parents and the boyfriend called. How is no one, I mean... (laughs) Again, I understand how some police departments, police officers treat missing persons that are sex workers or even murders of sex workers not as appropriately or as thoroughly as they should because of whatever bias they have or whatever solution that they think it is. But obviously, that was not the case. And... (sighs) It's not like either of those cases, Tammy or Robin, could have been, neither of them could have been saved, I don't think. Tammy, maybe. not. Definitely not Robin, though. But, you know, more evidence would have been preserved the less time that they have wasted. And I will continue to say that as long as we have cases that talk about missing people. Because, again, (sighs) this 48 to 72 hour rule is fucking insane. A week goes by and thankfully Robin's father decides to reach out to the local newspaper and tell them about Robin's disappearance. Unfortunately, reporters were told to include the fact that Robin was a prostitute and that it was important to the story, which I guess maybe, but I don't know. I feel like these parents, Robin's family is already going through a lot and you know, it's already upsetting that she's missing. But when you put the fact that she was a sex worker in there, you're like basically negating her validity because that's because that's what society does. And it's fucked up. And I'm not saying it's right because it's not. But <sighs> the narrative just changes in the way that people feel about the victim changes when they hear something like that. And again, like I said, it's not right. <laughs> it's fucked up. No one should be 
discrediting or dismissive of someone who's missing or murdered or injured or whatever just because they're a sex worker. I hate that narrative that just because that's what they do that they deserve X, Y, and Z because those are the risks that they put themselves in front of. That's, no, no one deserves that. I'm sorry. Now, Rob Benedict, her brother, of course was very upset that she was involved in prostitution, but that that was the detail, again, like I said, that most news outlets and the viewers and readers focused on. But because of the media attention, police officially started looking into her disappearance. And shocker, shocker, again, same with Tammy's wiki. Once the media gets involved, then the police decide they need to do something. Ridiculous. Of course, her boyfriend is the prime suspect. They question him about his relationship with Robin, and he verifies that he was not only her boyfriend, but her pimp. He informs them that Robin had a client that had been stalking her for the past few months, and he claimed that this man would literally sit and watch Robin's apartment and follow her while she was seeing other clients. And to no surprise, that stalker was Professor William Douglas. The police received a search warrant for Douglas's residence. They found a pair of Robin's underwear and a blue windbreaker with bloodstains on it. The detectives questioned Nancy about the men's shirt that they had found, and she verified that it belonged to her husband. And she also provided police with the string that she used to repair a patch in that shirt. After the home search, Professor Douglas was arrested for Robin's murder. Later, the crime lab revealed that the string Nancy provided was a perfect match to the shirt and that the bloodstains on the professor's windbreaker wasn't just blood, but also brain matter. Which, that just confirmed for them that Robin was absolutely dead. But her body was still missing. After a year, a year, thankfully the professor was in prison, the police still could not find her body. No matter how many times they pressed him, he, you know, they couldn't find her and he refused to say. Because he wanted to be presented with a plea deal from the DA. Because again, what an arrogant piece of shit this guy is. Seriously. Oh my God. Ugh. So the plea deal reduced the murder charge to manslaughter. If he could provide the location of her body. So he leads the police to her car which is found in New York City, just near Penn Station, and tells them the location of the dumpster where he dumped her body and the landfill it went to. Now, I can't understand why he would still, that plea deal would still be honored. He did not tell them where her body was. Yeah, he gave them a general area because, again, it's a massive landfill. So to comb through that is going to take years. And that's if even you can just find her. But like, for real? Oh, I do not understand why they even gave this asshole a plea deal. He admitted to doing it. I don't care, you know, self-defense. They could approve that. So I don't understand. Irks my freaking soul. At the trial, Professor William Douglas pled guilty to manslaughter and to the theft of $67,000. That's right. He stole $67,000 from Tufts University. 
all of that spent on Robin. I mean, good for her. <laughs> sadly, I mean, obviously, sadly, at this point, she's dead. But, you know, at the time, that was the money she was making. Good for her. So, anyway, he was sentenced to a minimum of 10 years, but was released in eight and a half for good behavior. Ugh. Fuck good behavior. You're in prison. Good behavior didn't get you there. Bad behavior did. Why do you get it to get out for being good? I don't... Mm. Anyway. Professor Douglas and Nancy divorced. Go Nancy. But while he was in jail, he, he married a woman named Bonnie G. Smith. If I haven't made it clear, I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> but how does he get married again? I mean, no offense to Bonnie Smith, but like, are you insane? Like, is she insane? I don't, I don't think you can get any bigger of a red flag than I killed my mistress with a sledgehammer. I'm just saying. I mean, to me, huge red flag. To Bonnie Smith, maybe it's not so bad. I don't know. But good for Nancy and getting her divorce. I'm also really pissed, obviously, about this minimum 10-year sentence for killing someone. And you only did eight and a half. Ugh, please, get out of here with that. Luckily, the professor was ordered to pay the Benedict family $20,000 and to share any revenue he made through the retelling of his crimes. Because, of course, this asshole wrote a fucking book. Of course. A $29 million wrongful death suit was filed against Douglas by the Benedict family. Good for them. But I have not been able to find anything that says that the suit was settled or not. Robin's body still has not been found. And I hate that her family has to live with the fact that they'll never be able to actually bury her. But as for Professor William Douglas, he's free and lives with his new wife somewhere in New England. <sighs> Again, fuck this guy. The murder of Robin Benedict is tragic, to say the least. I mean, Robin had a bright future. You know, she's an extremely talented artist and she could have achieved her dreams if she hadn't met that shitty boyfriend of hers who turned her into a prostitute. But that's beside the point. You know, Professor Douglas took that from her. Any chance she could have had, like, to have a good life? You know, I mean, again, she had, I mean, he stole $67,000 to pay her. So, I mean, she was getting good money. She was probably living up, living it up, living her life and good for her. You know, at 21 years old, hell yeah. However, I don't know that I would have been able to manage that type of money at 21 years old. That would have been really intimidating. I probably would have blown it all, to be honest. But anyway, enough about my horrible spending habits. I really hate the fact <laughs> that Robin is just... Her body is just lying amongst mountains and mountains and mountains of garbage. And it's extremely unfair, not just to her, but to her family. Meanwhile, Professor Douglas is just living his life. I just, you know, I hope that they find some peace, her family, in knowing that at least he was found guilty of killing her and did serve time. He should have served way more time than that. Because, you know... I mean, technically, he was there for nine and a half, if you count the year he waited for his trial. But, I mean, that's really freaking short for murder. But again, of course, you know, 
he got it reduced to manslaughter, which I feel like is just another case of white male privilege, which is in so many cases, it's disgusting. I just, this case irks me again, mostly just because of the, well, not mostly because of the outcome. Obviously that's a huge part of it. The whole thing's fucked up. But I mean, that outcome is just atrocious given everything that he had done. I mean, (laughs) what I want to know is how many years he was actually spending for manslaughter and how many years he was spending for theft. I'd be curious to see which one was longer. Because, you know, the eight and a half year, you know, ten, quote unquote, eight and a half years was you know, lumped together. So I'm not actually sure how much time each count would have given him, which again, just means that he killed someone and he was going to get even less time if that was all he did. (sighs) Most likely anyway, at least that's how I'm, I'm viewing this. It's just so fucked up. I hate people. (laughs) But anyway, my loves, that is all I have for you today. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. I will have one more episode for you next week before our break. And then we will be off the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and I for two weeks to enjoy our holiday. Because we deserve it. But yeah, this will give you some time to catch up on other episodes. Or maybe look into some other episodes. We got some really great episodes up for you already. So check those out. And until next week, my loves, I'll see you guys around. True Crime in Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. To support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and its podcasts like True Crime in Academia, click the link at the bottom of the show notes and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and at True Crime in Academia. A special thank you to Anne-Sophie Anderson, composer and performer of the song Scorpio, which is this podcast's theme song. As always, thank you for listening, and we appreciate your support.